Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome into This Week in Hockey. Chris Kerber, Alex Ferrario, and my partner, Joe Vitale, joining you talking hockey for the next two hours. Coming up in the program tonight, we're joined by Blues General Manager Doug Armstrong. We'll react to things that he says, anything from the American Hockey League to the draft to Alex Petrangelo and free agency. That's all coming up in segment two of our number one. We've got another edition of Curbs versus Joey. We'll see if Alex actually brought us back into the realm of sports or if he went really obscure on us. That'll remain to be seen. We're going to give you a preview of tomorrow night's uh, Behind the Bench show brought to you by Boardwalk Hardwood Floors as we continue to profile other members of the Blues coaching staff and organization. And Steve Ott is going to join us for the entire hour tomorrow night. We'll preview that coming up in hour number two tonight. The Bruins play-by-play man Judd Surratt. Could the St. Louis Blues and the Boston Bruins be on track for a collision course for the Stanley Cup final again. All that and more coming up in hour number two. But, fellas, it's another week, another week of hockey, some more hype to go. And you really get the sense, don't you, that uh, this could be a big week and a half where certainty starts to climb into uh, some of the planning of the National Hockey League? I do. I don't know about you, Alex. Uh, I've talked to some to players here and there just dropping in curbs. You see what Pierre Lebrun is doing. Uh, he's a, such a credible source. I think he really does have a great insight on what's going on behind the scenes of this players committee. Uh, but be, between his stories and hearing what these players are talking about, uh, there are conversations that went through the weekend. Uh, they talked multiple times last week for the first week since the shutdown. And there's some important calls that are happening over this yesterday and today as well. So I do think the traction's happening. I think they're looking at other sports and how they're coming back. I think the NHL is clearly saying that we better keep up with the Joneses here and and make a plan here relatively quickly or else we're really going to fall behind. So I think that both sides want to get it done. I think both sides understand that there is just so much now financially they're seeing that is at at risk here without a return to play, uh, at least planned. So to me, Curbs and Alex, uh, I feel as if over the next week, we're going to have some, I'm not going to call it concrete news, but it's going to be silly putty. Let's put it there where they're going to have some sort of tentative plan, at least in place moving forward. I agree a hundred percent. And, you know, to take away a lot of positives from this one, you know, the, first of all, the NHL and the NHLPA continue to have conversations. They continue to meet along with the return to play committee. So the fact that they're meeting beyond the regularly scheduled meetings, I think is a positive. But then on top of it, you see what's going on in Major League Baseball right now and the conversations and the negativity surrounding it. And then you look to the NHL and the NBA, and it's just kind of conversations behind closed doors. You're not hearing players being outspoken negatively about, well, we don't want to return because we want to be paid. You seem to be hearing pleasantries between the players, the owners, and Gary Bettman and the front office members of the NHL, which to me is a positive sign because if you're hearing the negatives like you are in Major League Baseball, that's what makes it feel like you're further away from returning. And you're getting more cities saying that they're ready for sports. You're hearing different hub city options for the NHL. There are so many positives coming from the conversations right now between both sides that the NHL actually seems to have the most momentum to returning before any other sport. You know, we're starting to hear athletes, and this you knew this was going to come, uh, and and it's and it's time for it to come. You, you're starting to hear athletes' thoughts on whether or not they want to play. I have no doubt in my mind that if you are a team that was in the playoffs and felt you had a chance to win a Stanley Cup, you're going to look forward to playing. But I've even talked to a couple that you, they do wonder. And Joe, I 
I'm trying to understand the I just don't think I want to play versus I'm going to use the safety as a reason for having that opinion out there. But but in the end, uh, if if you were paid to play the entire season, whether that happened uh, normally or it happens a month from now, I think you have to play it, don't you? I do. And I think that the gray area for players, at least what I've heard from some and kind of been thought around for some players is, listen, we, we played a season, we've gotten paid for a season, and this could just be a wash moving forward. But Curbs, I'm like you. I know it sucks for these players because given the situation, it didn't work out the way they wanted. But at the end of the day, you're employed by your team, the team that pays you to do a job. And assuming that the World Health Organization and all the health safety moving forward says it's okay to do, I think once you get that clearance, you just got to do it. And it's it, it's going to be unfortunate for players with families and if they got to quarantine, all these details got to be worked out and figured out. And they may not like it. I think it's going to be an initial shock right away for them. Like it's going to be like, gosh, okay, well, I guess here we go again. But once they get to these cities and up and running again, it'll all be fine. But I think it's just that initial like, okay, I guess we're doing this thing. That's going to kind of throw some guys off. I mean, you understand where they're coming from, certainly from a, a safety standpoint. But if the World Health Organization and all everyone involved says it's safe and this is how we're going to do it, all other sports are doing it, then there really should just be nothing else that needs to be said. It's you work for us. You're part of this team. We paid you to play. Now you go out there and you just you just play. The other aspect of this that I want to get both your opinions on are, are, is what we're hearing in terms of the next step to getting back to play, and that's the playoff format, which I know has been debated of the 16 team to the 20 team to the 24 team, and that seems to be the most likely scenario right now with a bunch of possibilities of hub cities, four different hub cities, one, two specific hub cities. So, Curves, I'll start with you. Just your thought now, because we've talked in the past about how the 24 team playoff format doesn't seem like it's going to logistically work but now it seems like that's what's gaining the most traction i believe that the national hockey league will have some games that they'll count as regular season games and the way to look at those is training camp games i just don't think you can go straight into a playoff uh, scenario without getting a few games under their belt now you got to keep i think this in mind the national hockey league opens up training camp and within four days they're playing games okay so that type of scenario is is not new but I also think that if you put a little logic into this, to answer, to kind of go back to what Joe was talking about from a safety standpoint, whether you go with 20 teams or whether you go with 24 teams to start, I'm perfectly fine if you weed that down to 16 teams before you start the playoffs. And Joe, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I realize some players may not be. I'm perfectly fine if you end up playing two weeks of games, you end up playing six games. And that becomes a six-game, you know, set for a team like Chicago to jump in, or Montreal, or somebody to jump in, right? Uh, Winnipeg, Nashville, however that goes. Because if you really think from a safety standpoint, if you're going to go through and do this, well, if let's just say you let's just say you start with 24 teams. Well, within two weeks of playing again, so let's say if if you did two weeks of camp and then two weeks of games for within a month. Half those teams are going home. You've got eight teams going home already. Mm-hmm. They're going back to their, you know, sheltering in place, doing whatever in, in their home markets, right? So then you're down to 16. Two weeks after that, you're down to eight. So within within a six-week time period, you're only worrying from a safety standpoint at that point about eight out of 32 teams or 31 teams. I, I think it actually behooves the National Hockey League 
to start the playoffs with 16 teams. I, I, you know, curves in some ways, I agree. Definitely. Absolutely. I, I've heard some people say that with, for the integrity of the game, you know, the blues work so hard all season long. And then you look at the Chicago Blackhawks who basically had a 0% chance of making the playoffs before the stoppage. And then all of a sudden you're going to let Chicago back in. Where's the integrity right there to me. I, I think you got to throw that out the window. And this is just my opinion. I think the more teams you get involved, the better. I know some some guys are saying, well, maybe instead of 24 teams, do we do 20? Or do we windle it down just to 16 and get right after it? To me, from a big picture standpoint, this is about generating as much revenue and generating as much excitement and, and including markets like Montreal and Chicago and New York because you include 24 teams. That's really important because we're trying to regrow the game during this crazy weird time and if you can get montreal involved if you can get chicago involved although it may be unfair especially if you're a blues fan i think it's very important to try to just continue to jack up the revenue and try to jack up the energy around the country as far as people cheering for their teams plenty to still discuss as we hopefully inch closer to returning to action with the nhl that's joe vitale and the voice of the blues chris kerber i'm alex ferrario we'll get into some of this discussion about an early draft in the nhl about the potential of returning and what to do for doug armstrong when it comes to unrestricted and restricted free agency we'll get into all of that with the president of hockey operations for the st louis blues doug armstrong he joins us next on this week in hockey on your home for the st Louis Blues 101 ESPN. Well, welcome back into this week in hockey. Chris Kerber, Alex Ferrario, and Joe Vitale with you. And we're pleased to be joined by the Blues general manager and president of hockey operations, Doug Armstrong. And boy, Army, a lot to try and get through with you today. First off, how are you doing? Are you hanging in there? Yeah, yeah, we're doing well, actually. We're doing a lot of stuff with our amateur scouts, getting ready for uh, the draft. We're usually curves. We go to the Combine in Buffalo and have a chance to interview the players face-to-face, but we're doing it on Zoom right now. So we're talking to somewhere between, uh, you know, 70 to 80 players, and uh, it's been interesting. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's in the job search world right now and he's been doing a lot of online interviews and it's been difficult for him he's a very personable guy and so to feel like like to be able to look across and try and read what the interviewer is asking and get a different feel have you noticed a little bit of a difference when you're trying to talk to players through the zoom aspect on how you have to read things yeah it has been uh it's been interesting you know the uh, the, the players now are so well educated by their agents on what questions and how to how to steer around them and you know, when you're doing it face to face, you can you can see if you're making them a little bit uncomfortable and how they respond to it. But uh, the guys are putting in really good effort. Uh, talking about the players now, they're 17, 18 year old young men. It can't be comfortable for them, but they're doing a really good job, and our guys are getting the information that they need. Army, how have you been able to navigate through this draft with just so much uncertainty in the future with next season? Uh, just for the, it means the salary cap, for example. So how how has this process been with you with so many unknowns? Well, I, I think the, the hard part, uh, Joy, with the draft is that you, you want to see players at the most important time of year, which uh, for for the players, uh, it's the U18 final tournament that was going to be uh, played this year in Ann Arbor, I think, and then the uh, the playoffs for the players in the CHL or the NCAA tournament. And uh, you, you just we just lose that, uh, that most important time to watch them play. So you're going over footage and watching tape of uh, a lot of games that, 
are just are just games in a season, and it's going to be an interesting draft in the sense of you, you don't have the, the same information as you had in years in the past on how they perform at certain times. But uh, every team is is the same. The other part too, which is uh, going to be new to us, is you, you usually get a chance to to see these guys at the combine do physical testing. You can see if they. You know, some players at 18 have a man body and some players at 18 have a boy body. And it's it's harder to tell. You can't tell over Zoom on that thing. So you have to rely on your scouts what they've seen during the year. As as we all know, like Ian Cole, for example, when he was drafted, he was a man. Uh, and uh, uh, Sammy Blay was a boy. Uh, and, you know, it took Sammy to 21, 22 to understand big, strong, and now to see the way he plays. He couldn't have played like that at 18. He wasn't big or strong enough. So it, those, those are some of the things that uh, that are harder to, to come across because you don't have that face-to-face and you don't have a chance to watch these guys work out and, and do some of the testing that's very hockey-specific. All I was thinking there is, and some of us at 48 have a bag of milk butter. <laughs> Glad you said it. I, I am what I am. <laughs> Army, uh, so sticking with the, the draft here, I, I've been fascinated to just read the scenarios and – and actually, one of the things you kind of got me going on this when we were talking about the offside rule and so like an avenue that I had not thought of. It might have even been a couple of years ago when we talked about it is, you know, a player trying to stay on side, kicking his skate back and, you know, the safety aspects of it. So the unintended consequences, I guess, is the right phrase here. So I'm fascinated by the idea of all the different challenges of an earlier draft, if the season's going to be completed later, those type of things. How are you maneuvering your way through those scenarios? Well, I think again the way the way that we're trying to look at as an organization is what's best for the NHL not what's best for the St. Louis Blues because you know we're we're in trying times when we come out of this we want to have a product that uh, is up and running and I know you know so I guess my answer to that is in, in a, the, the reason they have the draft when the season's over you know how everyone finished and and you can do it in a specific order it's difficult now with uh, no set date when we can return if we can return uh, all indications are that we're going to do what we can do to get into the playoffs. But uh, if they have to have the draft early, uh, it's going to be, um, you know, there's no guarantee that Boston's going to win the Stanley Cup, but they're going to pick 31st if, if we have the draft early. That's just the format, and we're going to pick 30th. Uh, now, I, I hope we're in the finals, and it would have worked out that way anyways. Uh, but there's always upsets. You look at a team like Tampa last year uh, that got upset in the first round, and they would have lost five, six, seven slots in the draft. Uh, because, you know, they would have picked 31st into the format if he had gone by regular season. Well, that being said, those are small, small things that uh, you have to overcome in a situation like this. Uh, The other thing that, uh, you know, with the draft being prior to the end of the season, uh, you know, usually when you get to the draft, you know what next year's salary cap is going to be. And and draft picks are equity that the team can use to get better they won't have that ability to use their draft pick equity to get better because there'll be no trades prior to that. But again, there's pros and cons to everything, and uh, and we're very comfortable that the league is going to do what, what's right uh, for, for the game in, in total. Joe, let me uh, jump in real quick here. Uh, Army, one follow-up that, that uh, to, again, sticking with the draft for one more question here I'm fascinated with. Is it is there a possible scenario where if a draft were to be held before the season were to resume – that a player could get traded and be playing for a different team, almost like a second trade deadline. Not, I've never heard that being uh, talked about. The the trade the trade uh, 
roster, like there's a freeze right now. Uh, I, don't, I don't see that uh, any scenario where the teams that are situated now in the playoffs are going to be able to bring outside sources in. Okay, so even even if the draft were to be held and there is a draft deal to be made where one player were to go for a draft pick, then he would almost have to be left out. Yeah, my again, my understanding was that you're not going to you're not going to be able to trade uh, players uh, from you know yeah you could you can't so, I don't see a secondary trade deadline right. I guess is that if that's the question. Joe? Yeah, one of the always the areas are just kind of confusing as we continue move forward. Another thing, sticking with the youth. Army, obviously, news last week, AHL cancels their season. Um, you know, I, I played in the American League a long time. You, you look at the Blues players, Ivan Barbashev, you know, Sammy Blay, how they developed down there. You know, even your goaltender and Jordan Bennington. From a general manager's perspective, uh, what kind of impact does this have on the National Hockey League level and how valuable is this going to be moving forward in the next season to make sure there is some AHL to some capacity? Well, Joey, I think we can probably start where we left off with the, the the draft. Is that we really wanted to see how how our young prospects, our young players, how Costin was going to play, how Bukanski was going to play, how Meikle and Wall were going to play as in the stretch drive and into the playoffs. Again, that's another learning curve that they that they're going to to miss uh, just because of this. Uh, and then you go into next year. The American Hockey League is is more of it's, it's certainly a gate driven league, not a, not a television. Uh, revenue league like the NHL, uh, so it's going to be difficult to come back and play without without fans in the seats. And again, it's there's such a, a cloudy crystal ball that we're trying to rub to find out what's going to happen. I think everyone's hoping uh, that that the curve continues to go down and we're going to get back to some normalcy, which will have people in the uh, in the stands. But we have to plan for the what if if they don't uh, economically, it's it's going to be very difficult. Uh, to carry 30, 35 players uh, on our roster. You know, we don't own our own American League team, what some others do. It's, so it's very complicated. And uh, I feel for Scott Housen, who's taking over the American Hockey League president. Uh, he's walking in at very uncertain times. And I hope Dave Andrews, I know Dave Andrews is going to stay there to help him through it. But there's a lot more questions and answers right now in the American League for next year also. Doug, as much as general managers and teams try to plan for every possible scenario, I get the sense, or at least my my gut is telling me here, that it's almost impossible to do that, that at some point in time you almost just have to move ahead with one plan and then deal with certain consequences as they arise. Would that be, would that be a somewhat fair assessment uh, because of the impossibility of trying to deal with every ancillary issue that could arise? Yeah, we're trying to deal with the uh, the thirty thousand feet uh, scenarios, but but you're bang on. Uh, we we were racking our brains in the first two weeks of of the pandemic. Okay, what are we going to do here? What are we going to do there? And like even now with the coaches, uh, you know, I'm not big into make work projects. Like, don't we don't need the coaches? We don't need people doing things just to have busy time. If it's meaningful, it can help us. Let's do it. Uh, and that that that's sort of the situation that we're in is that you you can drive yourself crazy trying to formulate a plan for every every situation but at the end of the day the the main thing for us is our players are working as hard as they can off the ice uh to get ready that we're preparing our facilities the best we can to be safe and sanitary when they get back uh and then you just trust the process of our coaches and our players they've they've done a great job over the last decade of being ready to play, over the last two years of being ready to play, under any scenario that we come back in, they put themselves in a good spot. And uh, I like the maturity of our group that when we 
if, if and when we do come back and play, we should be considered a team that has a chance to uh, compete uh, for the championship. Well, Army, the last one I have for you is just given, I guess, given the traction of discussions, I've talked to a bunch of players, you're starting to see a lot of reports from pretty good sources that you're starting to see maybe something evolve in the near future. Talks are starting to pick up with the return to play committee. I guess from a Blues perspective, what's going on with your players now that we're starting to see possibly some positive news on the horizon? Are, are the players being told to report back to St. Louis? If not, are they already here in St. Louis? Or, or what needs to happen, I guess, for you to make the call to these players saying, let's get back to St. Louis because something may be coming up here pretty soon? Well, the, the, the way the NHL and the NHLPA have, have informed everyone is there's going to be, a, we're in phase one now, which is the lockdown phase. Phase two is going to be uh, opening up your facilities on a totally voluntary basis to small groups to, to work out. Phase three is going to be a training camp, uh, which will be mandatory where you're on the ice and it'd be like what we do in September. And phase four is going to be to play games. So we're telling players, uh, you know, phase two, do what you're comfortable. We have probably half of our team is in St. Louis and half have gone to, to other parts, uh, to their summer homes or to their families. Uh, you know, we don't need anyone to rush back here to work out. If you have a great workout situation where you're in Toronto or Sweden or Quebec uh, and you're comfortable, just stay there and do what you're doing. Uh, and But as we get closer to phase three on the ice, obviously guys will need to filter back in. There's so, so many host of questions on, on you know, that are way past the, uh, my pay grade on, like when a player comes back in, what, what's your state's mandate on, on uh, quarantining? What's your country's mandate on quarantining? Uh, is there to get players back from Europe? Uh, uh, are, are there international flights that are going to get players from Canada? Are the borders open? So there's so many things that we don't have answers to right now. It's I just go back to I trust our players are doing what they have to do to be ready. When we do get to phase three and they get on the ice, their their, their bodies are going to be in shape at least to start training again with the mindset of playing. You touched on this uh, just a little bit before, Doug, but uh, more specifically with with your approach. With the uncertainty of the salary cap scenario and, and, and everything that goes along with it, how are you or can you even approach unrestricted free agency or restricted free agency with, with some of your players? Well, we only uh, right now we're down to uh, just two restricted free agents, Della Rose and Dunner. We were able to sign a few of the other guys. And unrestricted, we have two players, uh, Petrangelo and Brower. So our, our roster, uh, I think we are a little bit ahead of the curve in the sense that uh, next year's team, the you know 90% of it's in place right now. Uh, and so we're, we're in good shape there. But uh, we have to wait and see what the salary cap is going to be. Obviously, Alex is the is the, the linchpin to every every decision we're going to make moving forward. He's our captain. He's the player that that uh, started. To, I think I started here on early June that year, and he was drafted late June. So I've been in St. Louis uh, with him, and uh, he's the guy that, that everything is going to focus around. But they, we can't do that until we know exactly what we're dealing with. A lot of questions. Just uh, amazing uh, how the this is going to play out and go. But we've all got our fingers crossed, Army. Thanks for giving us a little bit of time today. We appreciate it, and uh, good luck as we continue to move forward. Guys, always great talking to you. hope you and your families are doing well, and I look forward to seeing you real soon. All right. Thank you, Doug. That is a Blues General Manager and President of Hockey Operations, Doug Armstrong. We'll take a break and come back in a moment here on This Week in Hockey on 101 ESPN. Well, 
gentlemen, welcome back into This Week in Hockey. Glad to have you with us alongside Alex Ferrario and Joe Vitale. I'm Chris Kerber, and we come your way every single Tuesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. And, of course, if you miss the show, you can subscribe to the podcast of it, and that is at 101ESPN.com. Guys, we just heard in the last segment from Doug Armstrong, and I know we, we touched on some different things in the opening segment of the show, but you really do get a sense that that the St. Louis Blues, at least my reaction to that interview, Joe, is that the St. Louis Blues, because of the planning of the hockey operations side of this business, may be one of the teams in the best shape going in and coming out of, of this pandemic situation from a hockey upside. Now, I'm not talking on ice. I'm talking just from a planning contract, drafting, where the organization is side. The Blues might be in a pretty good spot right now. The biggest thing, you know, you're looking at is the draft situation. I mean, Doug, we asked him the question about the draft and we were kind of prying and, and Doug was pretty honest with us. I love his answers, but he also, I don't think there's much to divulge. There's not much to really be too nervous about. He's a team, there's a team that was in first place. They're not really worried about falling in the draft and getting a very high pick or anything like that. So uh, I think that from, from a standpoint of a draft looking forward, I think it's pretty clear what Doug was saying. The only issue that I think that Doug is really confronting with right now is, you know, what do you do with the Petrangelo? And he kind of touched on it with us a little bit there, Curbs. He mentioned the restricted free agents there with Della Rose and Vince Dunn. But the the wild card right now where everything is adjusted from there is going to be Alex Petrangelo. A lot has to do with the cap uh, and moving forward. So to me, from a hockey op standpoint, uh, putting players aside, I would I would argue that you're exactly right that they are exactly where they need to be. And to and to be honest, at least it sounded positive from Doug Armstrong. And I know we can't touch on much, and you're just kind of speculating at this point. But talking about Alex Petrangelo and talking about the restricted free agents and the unrestricted free agents, there's at least some positive thoughts there from Doug Armstrong of what could happen in that scenario. And they have set themselves up for a positive moving forward into this offseason. It might be shortened, but he has kind of put together the plan of this team. He even told you guys that look, the roster is 90% there for next season. It's just that other 10% that you're looking at. And if it's a month off season, if it's less than a month off season, Doug Armstrong knows what needs to be done. It just needs to be, what does that salary cap look like? When you win a Stanley Cup championship, part of your franchise stability comes from when did you win it? So if you win that Stanley Cup championship, when you still have guys like Tarasenko and Schwartz, Schwartz still with another year on his contract, Tarasenko with a couple of years, Pareko with a couple of years, for example, and you win it when you do not have a lot of free agency issues to deal with, that's a benefit. That, that, that's, that I guess, is a bit of the luck of the draw, for lack of a better way of putting it. When you win a Stanley Cup championship, if you win a Stanley Cup championship, and you end up with a whole bunch of unrestricted free agents or restricted free agents in the salary cap era do raises, then you end up with a chance for more cap casualties. And Joe, cap casualties is going to cap casualties are going to be a part of things no matter what. They're harder to swallow a little bit when you end up in a winning situation because at least you have that to go. We saw basically David Backus be a cap casualty. Uh, of the St. Louis Blues, for example. But having said that, you can't avoid cap casualties. This season, though, 
could just be a real interesting situation from the cap standpoint because you just don't know what it is. So whether it's this year because of the pandemic and whatever number they choose or next year when a Jaden Schwartz becomes a, a free agent or somebody else hits free agency, cap casualties are going to be part of it. And and your ability to bring guys up, to get a third liner, to become a second liner, to get a, a number six defenseman, to move into your top four, to be able to have guys and youth, you know, to have a Scott Perunovich come in and if he can perform, be able to give you cost certainty for three, four, five years uh, from a youth standpoint, that's going to allow you to keep your top end players. You know, it is. And, you know, one of the areas that Doug touched on there, Curbs, that you know, with all this craziness, I just it just kind of lost me. You know, you think of the American Hockey League, you think of all the development. You know, he mentions names like Costin and Mikola. I mean, yeah. guys you kind of forget about. And, and you think about, he was saying how you were hoping the AHL to finish in, you know, obviously March and April, and to see those guys continue to progress because you're going to need those guys. I mean, Costin, we saw what he could do when he was up here. Nico Mikola, I think, impressed a lot of people. Uh, as far as what he can do, and he's potentially ready. Billy Huso signs a one-year deal, one-way NHL contract for next year, heading into next year, along with Mikola. So Doug Armstrong obviously has a lot of faith in these young guys, but not only faith, to your point, you're going to need them. You do lose Jaden Schwartz, but for the for the better half of the team, you are locked up for a while, which is nice. You know, you look at the Braden Chen contract that happened this year. You know, Colton Pareko is obviously going to be taken care of with this team. Obviously, we, know, we think so much of him. Scandella. You're fine. O'Reilly, uh, Tarasink, all these players um, are okay, but you're going to need young guys. And and that's what losing the American League is going to become the threat for Doug Armstrong, I think, because they are going to become so valuable when you lose a player like Jaden Schwartz. But uh, very fortunately for the Blues this past season, they didn't have to deal with any of that. So it's going to still be interesting to see how this kind of unfolds with the draft and how the season finishes and, and what happens to these UFAs come next summer. A couple of angles I want to go with you guys here. Uh, first off, just a quick thought on the American League. I could see an agreement. So keep in mind, Doug Armstrong, so the Springfield Thunderbirds are an independently owned team. We touched on this last week. I, I can see an agreement where, and, and it doesn't matter whether or not the NHL team owns the American League team or not. It is so heavily gay-driven that if you can't play with fans, I don't think it makes sense to play. What could make sense is for teams to band together and play extent, like an extended spring training, right? Where maybe the St. Louis Blues and the Vancouver Canucks are taking their prospects and they're putting a team together with their prospects and they're playing Colorado and Boston. How, how, there's there's going to be some kind of creative way of doing that. But I could see, even though Doug said like a taxi squad being in you know the finances of having a player up in the NHL, I could see the Players Association almost being not not forced but agreeing to a situation where look, your players are going to stay up with the National Hockey League team, but if they're not on the roster, they're still receiving their American League salary. I mean, it, it's better than having the guy sitting around his own house and not getting paid anything, right? Well, and to me, curves. What else is he going to be doing? That's right. that's because if you. If you have players that are going to disagree with that, then you're going to look, okay, and say, okay, go go do what you want to do then. And then the players are going to look around and say, well, geez, unless I want to jump jump on a boat, a slow boat to Swin- uh, Switzerland or you know Sweden or Russia, there's really aren't many options. They're going to look at this, and hopefully the agents will be talking to these players saying, listen, this is going to be a temporary thing. Uh, I think we need to keep the faith here. you got to be hopeful here that this is going to maybe last a half a season or a whole season. you got to kind of – 
uh, make nice with these general managers and you got to keep a good rapport with your team because this is temporary. And let's think a year from now, where do you want to be? Do you want to play in the National Hockey League? Well, then you got to kind of play nice and you got to play with the game. Listen, this is unfair. This sucks, to quite, be quite frank, and the players are going to hate this. But can you suck it up for a year and can you join one of these squads? Because in the meantime, in America at least, there's not really going to be any other option. And I think the players that do that are going to reap the benefits of it uh, come a year from now, and hopefully the American League gets back up and running again. Well, Alex, and if, if you're one of those players, why wouldn't you want to be? Right. You know, like if, okay, if it's, if it's I don't have an opportunity to go play in the American Hockey League, uh, and the St. Louis Blues are giving me an opportunity to be around the club every single day, even if it is at the American Hockey League salary because you understand the finances of it. If, if I'm Miko Mikkel, if I'm one of those players, I'm jumping on that option. Right. Yep. I'm absolutely jumping on, on that option, aren't you? Oh, yeah, 100%. And I can already think of a couple players specifically that would benefit from I mean, you go back to last season and during the Black Aces being up here and skating with the team. You know, Jordan Cairo was up here. I know he was dealing with an injury, but he was around the team. Mackenzie McEachern was he was playing, but then he was skating with the Black Aces. You look at some guys that would benefit. Austin Pogansky, who Doug Armstrong's name he brought up. Nico Mikola, who you just mentioned. Jake Wallman is another one. Clem Costin. Heck, Ville Husso, who potentially could be competing for a backup job next season with this Blues team, would benefit tremendously from working with David Alexander and working with some of these NHL players just in practices alone. And, you know, to to quote Doug Armstrong from his interview, you know, you're talking about these players when you draft them to try and find out, you know, when you got a man's body versus a boy's body, you got to find out if these guys can play the man's game. And I know the AHL is that man's game, Joe, but you also find out how they can handle that NHL level just by being around these NHL players. Well, I think some aspects of it, Curbs and and Alex, they were going to love. Listen, hopping on a bus and going to Albany, for 13 hours, that ain't no fun. You know, going to Binghamton, New York. You guys ever been to Binghamton, New York? <laughs> I Oof. have. So, yeah, I know you have curves. Oh, my gosh, Alex, talk about it. It sounds horrible. I mean, yeah, it's – I mean, there are aspects of this that players are going to absolutely love. You could be around an NHL team. You're going to be NHL facilities. You're going to have NHL trainers. You, you see these what these guys eat for lunch. I mean, it's amazing what life is like at the NHL level. They're going to like that. But at some point, these players are going to miss games. And – I mean, I'm talking to Mackenzie McCarkin last year when he basically sat out for the last two and a half, three months of the season. He was about ready to go crazy. I mean, these guys, they have a competitive nature about them. And as hard as it can be at times, they want to play games. So I think it can work assuming it's just going to be temporary, which I believe it will be temporary. And as long as these players keep that in focus, it is just a temporary thing because they're going to go crazy uh, day in and day out of just basically being a black ace. I mean, these black aces during playoff times, uh, they're great guys. They're having a great time, but they want to be on the ice, and they want to compete, and they want to play games. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all all comes together. Well, and there's going to be another aspect of this, and that is going to be what is the format of the 2020-2021 NHL season. If you are going to play a compressed schedule and still try to get in 82 games, I believe you're going to have to expand your roster and basically do the load management factor and say, okay, you guys got a schedule. I don't care what's going on. Tarasenko's not playing in this game. Right. This guy's not playing in this game. And how you manage that, I think, is all going to be a big part of it uh, as well. Well, that's a, again, uh, if you missed our interview with Doug Armstrong, you can uh, catch it on the podcast of the show at 101ESPN.com. When we come back, I try to snap a losing streak to Joe in Curbs versus Joe. 
Alex just tries to come up with games. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment here on This Week in Hockey on 101 ESPN. Final time here of our number one on This Week in Hockey. Welcome back. Alex Ferrario, voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber, and Joe Vitale with you as we are going to wrap things up with a little entertainment as we are going to continue with Kerbs versus Joey. Or as we called it at the end of last week's show, Alex is a moron. Yep, I, I like, like the that name, name of that. Yep, it's a good name, Joe. Uh, all right, I got to get off this. I got to get off the schneid here. Joe's on a three-week win streak. Of course, you both like the name of Alex mm-hmm. versus Moron. So we're in. This is week eight. It's five to two. Joe's in the lead. I've lost all faith in your ability to keep track and count. By the no, way, I have, I have this. I have this written down. So here's the deal: player pull curbs you want. Joey won the spelling bee. The sports movies curbs won. The infamous ding. Hockey or wrestling was Joe. Disney was Joe. Finish the lyric was Joe. And are you smarter than a fifth grader was Joe. Yeah. All right, so it's 5-2. So you're five on a four-game losing streak. Yep. All right. Five to two. So okay. this week, guys. Wait, I went up 2-0. I don't think I went up 2-0. No, you never went up 2-0. Okay, then I'm not on a four-game losing streak if we've done six games. Seven games. Oh, we've done this seven? This is week eight. This is week eight? Yeah. We're gonna Told you this, I have no faith in your ability to count. Moron. We're going to call this Curbs as a moron here. <laughs> All right. So we're going back to hockey on this one, guys. We're going to get some sports involved with this. This one's called, What Number Did He Wear? Oh, Nelly. Oh, yeah. We're going to try and see how good you are with these. So these are, these are pretty famous names in the world of hockey that played in the NHL, uh, but they are for teams that you may have forgotten that they played for. So we're going to have to remember the name. Oh, not the name. I'm going to give you the name. I'm going to give you give you the near. Hold on. This is a game. If you round up trying to put <laughs> so this out there, how sorry. hard is this? Good Lord, Alex. I'm going to give you the name. I'm going to give you the year, and I'm going to give you the team he played for. You give me the number. All right. Got let's it? go. We're yeah. going to start with Joe I'll because start. he won last week. So Joe Vitale, number if one. If you give him Gretzky, I'm coming over this table, and I'm just going to lay You're out. Right. It's Gretzky, Ovechkin, <laughs> yeah, and Crosby. Okay. That's all it is. All right, Joe, question one for you. Nashville Predators, the 2006-2007 season. What number did Peter Forsberg wear? Oh, man, I am going to be so bad at this game, fellas. God, I'm bad with numbers. I, I don't even know. This 20, is in the 20s. 22. <laughs> is that your answer? Yeah. It is not. It's 21. 21? He stayed 21 his I entire career. Stayed his no, I, why would you ask me that if it's the same one? That's a trick question. It's not a trick question. You got to know it, Joe. Plain and simple. All right. Robotics. <laughs> All right. Curbs is first one. Philadelphia Flyers from 2001 to 2004. What number did Jeremy Roenick wear? 97. 97 is correct. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Curbs is up by one. Joe, back to you. 2000. He's going to roast me on this two... one. I, just, I got a bad. Joe, you can't say oh, that you're. He... You he, can't say you're bad at numbers. This isn't no, math. No, listen, Alex rigs this, Joe. This is where he starts giving you Gretzky, Curry, oh, and on. things like that. And then and Curbs. then he'll give me, like, uh, what number did, uh, you know, Toe Blake wear for Toronto in Curbs. 19, Just whatever. Just because you weren't smarter than a fifth grader yeah. doesn't mean I rigged the question. Really? You had to look up the question you gave I us. I had to look up every question. I told you I wasn't smarter than a fifth grader. Curbs can just see numbers and know the player. Me, I I, I see a stride. You played against some of these guys. Give him a number. By, Let's go. I, I, I know him by the stride, not the number. Go. All right, here we go. Mike Madonna, what number did he wear with Detroit from 2010 to 2011? 90. 90 is correct. Did I rig that one, Curbs? 
No, you know, I know that because Ryan O'Reilly was nine his whole life. He went right. to Colorado. He wasn't able to get number nine, and he loved the way it looked on the rocket. So he, he went with number 90. It's pretty awesome. There's a little sports trivia for you. See, I, I, I have thoughts when I come up with yeah, these games. Yeah, don't sprain your elbow, okay, pat yourself on the back. Jesus Give us the next one. Jesus, Curbs. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the San Jose Sharks from 96 to 97. What number did Ed Belfour wear? Oh, wow. Ooh. I forgot he even played for San Jose. Oh, good. So you went nice and obscure. Oh, he's um, a famous goaltender. Yeah, come on. Uh, Ed Belfour? Uh, I'll say 34. No, he wore number 20. Oh, I was surprised okay. he wore the same number as Evgeny Nabokov. Ugly. Ugly number. Yes, indeed. All right, Joe, next up. From the Calgary Flames, the 2008-2009 season, what number did Todd Bertuzzi wear? Ooh, Bertuzzi, 44? No, 44 was his entire career. Other than Calgary, he wore number seven. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Forgot that too. So right now it's tied 1-1. Next up, Curbs. From Calgary of 98 to 2000, what number did Martin St. Louis wear? Marty St. Louis in Calgary. This was the beginning of his career. Marty St. Louis in Cal. Was it 17? No, he was close. 15. Damn, that was close, Curbs. Surprised you were close with that one. All right, Joe. Hey, Alex said yeah. he surprised you were close with I it. I know, Kurt. I heard How's that. that feel? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right. All okay, right. Hey, Joe, no matter what, guess what? This name's going to stay being called. <laughs> hey, you're close. Good job, Curves. <laughs> All, right. All right, Joe, next up. From Chicago Blackhawks, the 90 to 92 seasons, what number did Dominic Hashik wear? Oh, Hashik. Oh, God. 29. Nope, 31. 37? No, 31. Mm. No, uh, Olaf Kolsig was 37 with a Tampa Bay Lightning, which I have no idea. All right, Curbs. From Toronto Maple Leafs of the 2003-2004 season, what number did Brian Leach wear? Oh, hell, I don't know. Uh, four? Two. Damn it. Four, two his entire ah, career. Two. Two. Yeah. Was that a trick question, guys? No, I thought maybe. Well, they, they now see, Toronto's a unique challenging one because... They have some numbers that won't wear, but then they have all the honored numbers. Right. I'm trying to figure that one out. Right. I was surprised he kept it. I thought that he, that wasn't even available. All right, Curbs. Or I'm sorry, this Joe. is Joe here. So it's still tied 1-1. Joe, from the Atlanta Thrashers, the 2006-2007 partial season, what number did Keith Kachuk wear? I'm going to go with seven. No, he wore eight. What? He wore eight. Who was seven? I think Ilya Kovalchuk. Yeah, Kovalchuk was seven oh, there. Oh, that's right. Wow. All right. So Curbs can win this or we go to the tiebreaker. Gretzky. 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 <laughs> <laughs> from, from the 97 to 2000 seasons, the Vancouver Canucks, what number did Mark Messier wear? Well, a guy at, at that point, Timmy. Oh, boy. This is why I sucked at standardized tests. That was your first instinct. Well, my first instinct is 11. Is that your answer? Yeah. 11 is correct. All right. Thank you very much. (laughs) I was hoping he wasn't going to get this. So here's the tiebreaker. Of course, throw the... Throw the ding out. Curbs does win this one. Two to one. Tiebreaker. Prior. 25. Yeah. No. I thought about that, but that was too easy. What number 
from 06 to 07 in St. Louis, his second stint, what number did Jamie Rivers wear? Oh. Ooh. Not 15, was it? Nope. 37? Nope. Six? Nope, 20. Six was his first one? Six was his first stint. And he wore 20, huh? He wore 20. I was hoping that that would be the tiebreaker, but I'm glad it wasn't because you guys wouldn't have gotten it. All right, what what did we call the show last week? Uh, It was Alex is a moron last week. All right. Um, How about (laughs) Alex is still a moron, Joe? Alex is still a moron. <laughs> the confidence, I like it. The confidence exudes when he wins the like game. It. You notice how teammates start to bind together here, yeah. Alex? That's that's. The, I put you guys against each other, not against me. That's not how this you're, game show worked. You're on her brooch. Well, at least I got hockey back in. Hey, I thought that was a pretty tough one. Uh, well, when we come back, hour number two of this week in hockey. That's hey, you know what, Joe? Or I'm, I'm sorry, Alex. Whatever your name is. That it's at moron. least that one you you stayed within hockey or sports in a hockey show. So I, I give you I you know I, that we didn't we could have named you some other things. And so I that's that's pretty good. So that's good. That's pretty good. All right. When we come back, I had a chance to catch up with Blues assistant coach Steve Odden tomorrow night on our Boardwalk Hardwood Floors Behind the Bench show. We're going to profile Steve Ott, so our long he joins us for the entire hour. We're going to give you a little preview of that. Also in the second hour, we catch up with Judd Surratt. Those Boston Bruins and the St. Louis Blues, if play resumes, could they be headed on a collision course for a rematch? Could we have a rematch of a Stanley Cup final for the first time since Detroit and uh, Pittsburgh? And then we'll also uh, preview play Gloria Call coming up in the next hour as well. Stay tuned. More to come on this week in hockey on your home for St. Louis Blues, Hockey 101 ESPN. Welcome back. Hour number two of this week in hockey. Alex Ferrario with you along with the voice of the blues, Chris Kerber and Joe Vitale as we bring you another hour of hockey talk here on your home for the blues 101 ESPN. Still finding plenty of things to talk about in this postponement of the season. Hopefully we're inching closer as we talked about in the previous hour with Doug Armstrong. And if you miss any of the show, you can check it out on the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from, or you can check it out on the website at 101 ESPN. This hour, plenty to get into as well. We're going to talk with Judd Surratt, the broadcaster for the Boston Bruins. We're going to get the perspective of what's been going on on the East Coast in terms of cities, pandemic, and hopefully sports returning. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Bruins and Blues potentially meeting up again when the season picks back up. We will also get into a little preview of this upcoming weekend with the Play Gloria Thursday and Friday night as we bring you each Blues victory from the playoff run this Thursday night. It is game five of the Western Conference Final, and then it's game six on Friday of the Western Conference Final. And seven things that the NHL should bring back. We'll talk about that as well. But now I want to bring you a piece of what you're going to hear tomorrow night. And Curbs, you talked with Steve Ott on the Blues profile for a little behind the bench presented by Boardwalk Hardwood Floors. You heard from Mike Van Ryan last week. Plenty of different profiles on the website at 101ESPN.com. This week, tomorrow night, you'll hear from Steve Ott. Here's a little piece of that. Steve, originally born in Prince Edward Island, but you have lived all over the place, haven't you? I sure have, Curbs. Uh, you know, both my parents were Canadian Air Force, so we moved an extremely amount of times from a lot of different postings, and uh, I was fortunate enough to, to leave from Prince Edward Island and go to northern uh, Manitoba, close to Winnipeg, and have a lot of flooded outdoor ice time, and that, that was my best friend was that hockey rink and kind of 
took me into my NHL career from there. But there was a lot of a lot of good that came from those moves as well, and uh, a lot of adversity growing up young. But you know what? It, it sure taught me a lot. Did hockey give you some consistency through those moves? It sure does. You know what? There's nothing harder than making new friends every couple of years or every year. And one one thing you have in common is is once you're on a new team, uh, you you become to you know know who your friends are, and you you you, you know you meet new people all the time. But hockey has that ability to just make such an easy transition in life. And without it, um, I don't know where I'd be with all those moves. Uh, it's it's not easy living that lifestyle, and I know a lot of people do. But you know what? The the constant in my life was always hockey and, and kind of turned me into who I am today. What was it like having to get used to new teammates and new friends on a fairly regular basis? You know, it's, it's no different than any kids that struggle with it today. It's, you know, it's awkward at first. It's always, always um, you know, nerve-wracking to go into a new team or a new situation. But it also gives you a lot of character. You, you learn how to talk to people. You learn how to communicate extremely well with others. And I think that, you know, growing up, that's, I, I learned a lot of that throughout all those new teams and new friendships that were made. Were you ever the shy type? <laughs> I don't think I could be the shy type, to be honest with you, Curbs. Um, you know, my mom's a pretty uh, outgoing person, and I think I, I do definitely get it from her. Uh, my dad's sternness as well. But you know what? It, it, it's something that when you, when you, you know, can go into a room and make somebody else's day better. I kind of learned that from a, a young age and, and always uh, always was a talkative kid in class. So it was, it was a like I said, it was an extremely easy transition. When did it start to creep into your mind that hockey could end up being a career? Ooh, that's a, that's a good one, Curbs. You know what? It wasn't until late. And when I say late, most kids are drafted um, – to the OHL or, or, or know their path by the time they're 15 or 16 years old. And one thing I had was, you know, I had great ability as a young kid. Uh, and like most kids, when you turn 13 years old, um, you know, a lot of kids turn into math or into men. And I wasn't, I was still a boy and I was still a boy at 14 and 15 and 16. I was, I was tiny. I was small. Uh, I had ability, but it looked like I was going to fizzle out. You know, I got extremely frustrated uh, with hockey and kind of took a little bit of a, a side break uh, because of that for about six months and just didn't know where I was going to go with it. And I had a little bit of a growth spurt in that summer. And I remember, I'll never forget, I got a, a, got a letter in the mail from the Tecumseh Bulldogs Junior B team to try out when I was 14. And I, you know, I grabbed the dust off the gear out of the garage and went out and tried out and, uh, almost made the team, and they ended up sending me to Junior C, which was, uh, as a 14-year-old, the, the oldest guy in the team is a 21-year-old. So I ended up wow. playing that year in Junior C, and uh, to be honest with you, started growing slowly. Again, wasn't drafted into the OHL my 16-year-old year like most people, uh, but I definitely wanted to go that route. Uh, but it looked like it wasn't going to be a, a way to do it. So then I was looking at NCAA programs, writing my SATs as a 16-, 17-year-old, just kind of starting to prep to maybe try to get a scholarship. And then my local team drafted me in the OHL uh, in the second round, and that was the year it all came together. My 17-year-old year was my first year in the in juniors and also was my draft year to the NHL. So it it, it it kind of all flourished and hit at once, and by the end of the year, I was drafted uh, to the Dallas Stars. So how as a late bloomer do you go into that first year to becoming a first-round draft pick? 
it, it, you know what? It just just having that mindset and that ability. Uh, I remember I was sitting fishing with my dad actually. I told him I was going to lead the team in scoring uh, in the OHL, and he and he looked at me and basically laughed. And uh, <laughs> uh, he, <laughs> did he really? He goes, yeah, he did. He goes, all right, well, go get him, son. You know, and and it was one of those moments. And uh, you know, I would go watch games on a regular basis when I'd have off games and go and watch the OHL and and kind of study it the year before. And I just knew I would have success, to be honest with you. I believed in myself an extremely amount, uh, a lot. And then when I, when I made that OHL team, I had a, uh, an extremely successful coach in the name of Tom Webster, who just passed away, actually, that kind of took me under my wing and, you know, taught me how to be a junior hockey player and how to be, you know, next level, you know, can kind of ramp up my game. And to be honest with you, through his positivity, through his coaching abilities, uh, you know, I, I kind of flourished that year. And like I said, by the end of the season, uh, I was drafted and it was it was quick because I remember I, I didn't know anything. I didn't even know what the draft really was, to be honest with you. I didn't know uh, the, how the rating system was. I mean, just after Christmas, I was rated for the NHL draft and I was like, wow, this is, this is, uh, this is pretty exciting now. So it went from being the small kid and just sticking with it, you know, just putting the naysayers away uh, and believing in your abilities and then regaining my confidence and then letting my confidence take off. Once again, that's Steve Ott. You'll hear the entire interview behind the bench presented by Boardwalk Hardwood Floors tomorrow night at 6 o'clock here on 101 ESPN. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Judd Surratt, the voice of the Boston Bruins. We're going to find out what sports return is looking like on the East Coast next here on your home for the Blues, 101 ESPN. Welcome back to This Week in Hockey. Glad to have you with us here in hour number two. Coming up in a moment, well, not in a moment, in our next segment. Of course, on every Thursday and Friday night right now, we're replaying uh, the Blues wins of last year's Stanley Cup championship run. And you'll hear from Darren Pang and John Kelly in our next segment as they help us break down what were games five and game six from last season's Western Conference final run against the San Jose Sharks. But now we head to East and we're going to talk things over with the radio voice of the Boston Bruins, Judd Surratt, who for a long time was in Chicago with the Blackhawks and now with the Boston Bruins. Judd, how you doing up there in the Northeast, buddy? Chris, we're doing all right. Thanks for having me on. Hopefully everybody's good in your area. Everyone's uh, doing well. You, you know, this. it's interesting to talk to different guys as things move along about how they're getting through this pause and, and what they're seeing and, and, and what they're feeling. Just personally for you, what, what has this been like? It's been weird. I think it's been weird for everybody. Uh, the first thing that, that I think most of us think, uh, think about if we have kids um, are they getting what they need to be able to get through their days? Um, e-learning, I think, is different for uh, for a lot of the kids, and it's certainly different for a lot of the parents. So just to make sure that they're off to a great start, uh, doing as well as they can, you know, and at the same time, you know, they don't have the same type of contact that they have socially and with their friends. You know, are they able to get out and be active? Um, so I think that, that our principal concern is, is with our kids, you know, and then you start to think about, um, all the frontline workers, all the healthcare workers, what can you do uh, to be able to help out the local economy to keep things chugging along um, that will make things easier, um, you know, once some of the things that we're seeing now start to lift. Uh, the state of Massachusetts is slowly starting to reopen. Governor Baker introduced uh, a number of different phases that he's going to institute here 
over the next couple of weeks. You know, and I think the same is the case uh, for the city of Boston. The Northeast was, you know, it was a hot spot, certainly here in Boston and, and throughout the New England area. And if you go a little bit further south into New York, um, you know, but, but I think that we've tried to um, embrace the challenge that has been presented to us and, and try and spend as much quality time with our family, um, make sure the kids are safe, and, and make sure everybody around us is safe and healthy. Judd, what is Boston like? Because I went to college there for four years. I mean, when we found out last year we were playing the Bruins in the final, everyone on our side was so excited. I love St. Louis, but Boston is my next favorite city in America. We went from the North End to the Oyster House. I mean, we had an absolute ball last year in that final. For how vibrant of a city Boston is, what is it like now looking around and seeing so much emptiness? It's been very quiet. Uh, Joey, as you know well, um, trying to, to work your way around the North End during a normal time is, is almost impossible. Um, but to tell you how quiet it's been, uh, I went the other day and drove into the North End, found a parking spot, walked into Monica's, um, and was able to get uh, like this incredible Italian sandwich. You couldn't. That would first of all, it's impossible to drive through there. Second of all, it's impossible to park. And third, to be able to get into Monica's without an hour-long wait for a sandwich, unheard of. Um, you know, so it's it's been strange uh, to be able to go around a city uh, as tight uh, as Boston, as vibrant as Boston is, and to be able to do some of those things, but. You know, now as I think that you're starting to see the weather become a little bit warmer, and people have been they they've been pretty vigilant here about social distancing, going out and still wearing masks and going on walks. Uh, we took the family out for a walk the other day, uh, and there were still a lot of people out and about around the Charles River, but I think they were doing it responsibly. You know what? Next time you go in there or swing in and say hello to Pat and Frankie for us, those guys, those two guys at Monica's were just outstanding. I will text you I will text you a picture when we're done with this interview, Judd, of Joe Vitale holding a loaf of bread over his head, kind of like one of the sand people in Star Wars after knocking down Skywalker, right? And and he's and 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 Joe actually at this point time of the night might have looked like one of those sand men doing it, right? But um, those those guys were great. And and they're such good Boston guys. But but they treated us so well. I mean it, that I mean, Joe, you back this up. Monica's became one of our. I mean, we finished almost every single night there. That was the best. Oh, it was so sp- a- I mean, the whole North End, as you know, is so great. And I think that was after about fourteen shots of limoncello. I went down in the basement and started making bread at Monica's. You're right. <laughs> it was- oh yeah, no, that's the best. Uh, I met those guys, and you know, you get a chance to make some uh, fresh homemade pasta, and you know, they've got uh, a couple of terrific places. I mean, listen, the North End is just scattered with some some tremendous places to eat and drink. Um, you know, and this was one of the few times that I was able to go by Mike's Pastry and not come out of there oh. with a box of stuff from Angelo and, and some of the people who work in there. But uh, there are some fabulous establishments right around there. No doubt about it. J- Judd, let's let's get onto the ice here a little bit. I, I got to think, I mean, really, I think one of the great stories of this NHL season right up to the pause has to be your Boston Bruins. And, I know it may pain some Blues fans to hear me give a lot of credit here, but honestly, I mean, a, a Game 7 loss in, in a Stanley Cup final on home ice is hard. And, like, I think we've seen how the loss to the 
St. Louis Blues by the San Jose Sharks, and the Sharks, you know, didn't come out and, and weren't the same franchise even at this point in time that they were a year ago. The Boston Bruins come out and, and look even better. What what can you point to that either Bruce Cassidy did or Zidane Char leadership of that team? What was it that really came out and has led to the success and, and some terrific hockey that you guys have played this year? Well, guys, I think that you point to the first thing, and the operative word is leadership. And if you back up, this core group has been through so much. Go back all the way to 2010. They have a three-game sit-on lead against the Philadelphia Flyers. They lose that series, one of the scant few that have ever had that series lead and lost it. Uh, They come back the next year in 2011. They win the Stanley Cup, and that was a team that was down – um, two games to none against the Montreal Canadiens. They won, I think, all four of those series in seven games. Uh, if you think about the Vancouver series, they went through so many ups and downs through that. But it, it's about the character. It's about the leadership. It's about the core. And I think that that is carried forward. Listen, uh, we're actually going through right now, going back to 2013. Um, and if you remember what happened, or maybe Blues fans don't remember, but uh, the Bruins had a two games to one lead against the Blackhawks in the Stanley Cup final and watching because right now I'm going through games two and three right now. Uh, if you watch those games, the first thought that comes to your mind is how are the Blackhawks even in this series? There is no chance that they could possibly win it, but that's what they did. And it was a devastating loss on home ice in game six where they had a one goal lead with just over a minute left. And the Blackhawks scored twice in 17 seconds to win that Stanley Cup in Boston. The Bruins come back the next year. They win the President's Trophy. They got ousted, however, in the first round of the playoffs that next year. But I think the theme, and and if you want to draw that through line going all the way back to 2010 and now to what you're seeing in the 1920 season after what the Bruins experienced in Game 7 against the St. Louis Blues is just an abundance of character and resilience. You know, if you look at the Bruins' success this season, elite defensive team, um, terrific from Tuka Rask to the defense uh, to the forwards and how responsible they were, um, fabulous special teams, power play and penalty kill, an elite top line with Bergeron, Pasternak, and Marchand. Uh, David Pasternak was two goals away from his first 50-goal season ever and the first by a Bruin since Cam Neely. Um, and I think what was scary about the Bruins, two things. First, if they had won a couple of shootout games, they were 0-7 in the shootout, they would have run away uh, with the best record in the National Hockey League. And two, throughout the season, Bruce Cassidy was trying to find solutions on lines two, three, and four. Last year, uh, Jake DeBrusque and David Krejci gave the Bruins a reliable uh, one-two punch uh, on the second line for the Bruins. But I think all season long, The Bruins were sort of in fixed mode with lines two, three, and four. They made a couple of deals right at the trade deadline to pick up a couple of guys from the Anaheim Ducks and Nick Ritchie and Andre Kasha. But I think the scary thing for the Bruins is if they were able to find some sort of combinations on those second, third, and fourth lines, then the Bruins would have taken it to another level. With that being said, Judd, and you look back on that series, and we're doing that here in St. Louis, going back through each playoff series for the St. Louis Blues run to the Cup, but when you go back and look at those seven games between Boston and St. Louis, what jumps out to you of what happened in that series? 
Well, you know, I think the funny thing is, you know, and I don't know what the case is in St. Louis. You know, maybe, you know, people pour over it here in Boston because the team came up short in Game 7. And I think, you know, a few times, you know, you hear it, you know, mumbled and written about or talked about. I think there's some revisionist history here in this town. But I think for me, and I think my partner Bob Beers, I think we would both agree, and the Bruins, you know, after talking to a lot of the players and coaches about this, the difference in that series across seven games is that the Blues' best players outplayed the Bruins' best players across that series. And I think in many ways, Game 7 was emblematic of that. Uh, Ryan O'Reilly, Alex Petrangelo get things started in the first period. And the top-end guys for the Bruins weren't heard from enough consistently. They were outplayed by the Bruins, by the Blues' best players across those seven games. Did you feel, Judd, in that series that the Blues – did you feel that the Bruins were as prepared as they could have been with the type of teams that they had played to face a team like the Blues? Or, you know, did maybe the way that Carolina series went soften things up just a little bit? And I, I use that word soften very carefully, if you understand what I mean. No, um, you know, I, I don't think that, that was necessarily the case. You know, the Bruins went through a, a, a wicked seven-game series again uh, with the Toronto Maple Leafs, um, you know, and really playing in the second round against the Columbus Blue Jackets in the style that John Tortorella likes to employ is very reminiscent of the style that the Blues like to play. Um, I mean, you got a lot of guys who can crash and bang and penetrate were in your face. Uh, who are very difficult to play against. You know, clearly the Columbus Blue Jackets don't have Vladimir Tarasenko. Uh, You know, they did have Artemi Panarin, obviously, but they didn't have the type of players up and down the lineup that the Blues featured. Um, You know, you move on to that last round in Carolina. Um, I, I think that that series would have been different had those two teams met earlier in the playoffs. I think, um, Rod Brindamore had actually talked about it later in that series that his team was was mentally gassed, which I think would shock a lot of people because uh, in their previous series against the Islanders they swept them. They had uh, they had all sorts of time to be able to get ready for the Boston Bruins, and when it came to the Bruins, they just had nothing left in the tank. Maybe winning that seven game series against the Washington Capitals took it all out of them. I think a lot of people were shocked uh, that Carolina would upend Alexander Ovechkin. Uh, and the Washington Capitals. So I don't think that was necessarily the case. Uh, I, I think it would have certainly helped the Bruins if they had had or if they were able to get Kevin Miller back in their lineup at some point. Miller was actually trending to come back uh, right at the tail end of the conference finals against Carolina. and He actually came out and skated before game four and then re-injured his knee. Um, he has since injured it again. Uh, in trying to rehab and come back. But I think having that type of a player certainly would have helped uh, against the style that the Blues like to play. Uh, without question, Kevin Miller, he would have just been the smash mile. I think the Bruins certainly need, especially when Chara went out in that series too, Judd. Judd, I wanted to ask you just kind of moving forward now, we're starting to see some traction possibly of what this season may end up becoming, whether a 2014 playoff format. Something seems to be in the horizon. So let's assume that we're going to see hockey here pretty soon. You were talking about the Bruins as far as what happened to them in 2010. You talked about the adversity they went through with last year in Game 7. This Blues team, to me, just sums up adversity, what they went through last year. So moving ahead into this season now, 
I feel as if a veteran group that has dealt with adversity, that's going to be the kind of secret recipe for whoever comes out of this thing on top to possibly raise a cup this year. So would it surprise you to see a rematch this year with the Blues and the Bruins in the final? Oh, not at all. You know, obviously to be able to get through the East and the West is going to be really difficult, Joey. Um, you know, could this be the first time since 08-09 where you had the same two teams vying for the Stanley Cup as the Detroit Red Wings and the Pittsburgh Penguins did? Uh, Detroit winning it in 08 and Pittsburgh winning it in 09. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, just thinking about the Atlantic Division uh, in the Eastern Conference, uh, to be able to get through Toronto, to be able to get through Tampa, much less get through a couple of teams uh, on the other side, the Metro and Washington in particular has had the Bruins number uh, for the last number of seasons. So to get out of the East, I think is going to be really difficult. Um, I'm not as versed in the West uh, because we haven't had a chance to see, um, you know, what Colorado is playing like on a regular basis, what Vegas is like and what the road could potentially be for the blues. But I don't think there's any question uh, that there's a chance that these two teams could meet again um, because it certainly sounds like we're going to be able to restart. I have no idea what the format is and how it's going to play out, but, but yes, I could see that happening. There's no question about it. But, but the other thing that I think about is as you head into the playoffs, and I can't speak for some of the teams that the Blues were looking at playing in some of the earlier rounds. I can't speak for the Bruins. Part of the, part of the, the formula once you head into the playoffs is, and we all know it's a war of attrition. There are going to be injuries. There are teams that you would have faced in April if the playoffs had started and the pandemic had never happened, um, that would have been missing key players. I'll give you an example. Two guys, uh, two teams that the Bruins could face in the first round had this not happened. The Rangers, there would have been no Chris Kreider. He's back. Yep. Um, one of the teams they could have faced, the Columbus Blue Jackets. Seth Jones was out. He's back. And then fast forward. Uh, because a lot of people projected that the Bruins and Tampa Bay could again meet in the second round. I think Tampa uh, certainly learned its lesson from last year's uh, upset against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Steven Stamkos was going to be a question through the first round and maybe the second round. He is back. So um, all of these teams will be uh, on, on much different footing. Uh, as we fast forward to whenever this restart happens. Could not agree more with you there, Judd. We've been talking with Judd Surratt, the radio voice of the Boston Bruins. Judd, thanks for giving us some time on this week in hockey, bud. Stay safe up there, and hopefully we will be seeing you really, really soon. Curbs, Joey, great to talk to you. All the best to you and your family. All right, Judd, thank you very much. Hey, when we come back, we're going to give you a preview of Play Gloria, a look at what's coming ahead on Thursday and Friday with the Blues re- and the San Jose Sharks in a replay of their run to the Stanley Cup Championship. That's next on This Week in Hockey on 101 ESPN. Welcome back into This Week in Hockey. Alex Ferrario, voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber, and Joe Vitale with you here on 101 ESPN every single Tuesday night during this pandemic. And even when the season picks back up, you hear This Week in Hockey, two hours of hockey talk right here on 101 ESPN. Plenty more hockey programming for you the rest of the week. You're going to hear from Steve Ott, as we talked about earlier this hour, the Boardwalk Hardwood Floors Behind the Bench show tomorrow night here on 101 ESPN. Then Thursday and Friday, 
Friday night. It's play glory as we continue the Blues run to the Cup. Every single Blues victory throughout the postseason. We played a couple of regular season victories, and we did play the Pan Pass game, which was last week. This week, we got some good ones for you as we wrap up the Shark Series. Game 5 out in San Jose as the Blues tried to take a 3-2 commanding series lead. And then Game 6 back in St. Louis where the Blues eliminated San Jose and booked their ticket to the Stanley Cup Final. So before we go any further and before you hear the entire broadcast, which we do an hour pregame show at 6 o'clock on Thursday and Friday nights, a live pregame show as we look back on some of those games and get the perspective from myself, Curbs, and Joey, we also play the puck drop from beginning to end at 7 o'clock. But in our pregame show, we have a little highlights and we talk with different people surrounding those series. And upcoming, you're going to hear from Darren Pang and John Kelly this Thursday and Friday night talking about Game 5 and Game 6. So we wanted to play you a little preview of that, of what you can expect this week, Thursday and Friday night, for Play Gloria. Here's a little from Darren Pang talking about Game Number 5. In this, in this series in particular, up to this point in the San Jose series, Vladdy was kind of up and down, up and down, up and down. I think it was the San Jose series that really we just saw the Vladimir Tarasenko that we love so much. And you asked Craig Berube about the conversation he had with Vladdy uh, shortly before he started just going on his tear. Yeah, and I, 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 love, I love the fact that, uh, you know, Craig Berube was just so simple in the way he explains it, Joe, and the way he says it to somebody and, and, uh, you know, if, if you're not giving it your all, um, he, he's not afraid to tell you that. He's not afraid to tell you that, that you, you know, you've got to do some of the little things. And if you do the little things, you block a shot, the boys on the bench are going to be just pounding their sticks for you. You, you go in the corner and you, you, you lay a hit down. It's, it's, it's more relevant than scoring a beautiful goal in, in the playoffs. It gets the bench so fired up, and, and, uh, and then you get off for a line change. Everybody's patting you on the back. Everybody's patting you on the shoulder. And they, if you don't do it, you're not going to play. Um, if you don't set the tone, you're not going to be the guy that starts the game. You're not going to be the guy that's going to be on the ice at the last, you know, the last minute and a half. The, the times in which players, they, they just beg for that, that ice time. Uh, Joe, they, they want to be there when those moments are happening. But if you don't have the trust of the coach or you don't have the trust of your players, then you're not going to get that done. But I thought there was an overall game um, and a menacing game of Vladdy Tarasenko, uh, you know, in that series. Well, and Panger, you talk about setting the tone in that first period. Nobody said it better than Jordan Bennington as they had a power play to kill off. He saw a total mm-hmm. of 11 shots on goal. And in that first period, it felt like maybe the Blues weren't at the top peak of their game, but Bennington sure was to allow his teammates to kind of catch up. Well, that's when you need great goaltending. It's, it's nerve-wracking. As, you know, trying to, you know, trying to close out a game is nerve-wracking. Trying to close out a you know, a, a, a penalty kill, um, you know, let alone a series and a chance to get to a Stanley Cup final. And um, there's going to be moments where, you know, the other team plays their best because they're pushed against the wall. And that, that's what I love about hockey more than any other sport. You know, I mean, basketball, there, there is no goalie. You know, Mike, Michael Jordan cannot be stopped when he's going to the hoop, as, <laughs> as, as we've seen in the last dance. Uh, you know, in, in football, you know, there's no goalie. Uh, there's a goal line stand. Um, hockey? You can play your worst period or your worst five minutes or your worst game, and a goalie can stand on his head and spit out wooden nickels, and you can come out way with a win and find a way. And that's it's, it's what I love about it. Same time, boys, I've been on the other end of it where I've given up a couple of bad goals where I know my team's played really, really well, and there's no worse feeling, but there's no best 
no better feeling when you know you can carry your team during a during a tough stretch. Darren, I know we've talked uh, over the last you know, 12, 15 months, a lot about how the St. Louis Blues coaching staff handled things and then, you know, just the accolades to the players that did it on the ice. But the role that that David Alexander played in terms of helping break down the game plan for the opposition goaltenders is really a, a, a subheading to all the success the St. Louis Blues had. What do you think that they saw – and how to attack Martin Jones in this series? Well, number one, the details of the coaching staff were, were, were exceptional. And, and especially considering, and I'm talking about the entire coaching staff, not a whole lot of experience, you know, at the NHL level, let alone into a conference final. But the way that they were, and, 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 and this is another conversation have it, that, that we all had with Craig Berube. We've had many coaches here in St. Louis that when the playoffs have started, everything changed. Mm-hmm. You, you can't go here, don't talk here, don't breathe that way. Nope, you can't go in that locker room. You know, there are just so many things that all of a sudden they're just, they ended. And I remember asking Craig Berube about that beforehand, and I said, is there anything you need from us, anything we need to change? And he said, no, nope, I want normalcy. And he said, and I quote, if we're going to win 16 games in the Stanley Cup, I want everyone to act the same way the whole time. So as you guys well know, I packed up a – nine golf clubs. I brought them on the trip to San Jose and I did the same thing I did all the time. <laughs> I said, That's normalcy. But, but I will, I'll go back to what you're talking about, Dave Alexander and, and, and Jake Allen. And, you know, goalies watch goalies. They watch footwork. They watch preparation. You know, the one thing that, that Martin Jones did during the year was he gave up more goals than any other goaltender in the first two minutes of a period of the game of the period and, and it was an overwhelming number. So his preparation to begin wasn't very good, and he was passive on short side plays. So I thought the Blues did a great job of jamming. They don't like wasting shots, but when a goaltender's passive on the short side and goal, goals can, can, or, or shots can cause question to the goaltender and put him in doubt because he leaves the post early, then that caused chaos around your crease. I thought that was one area that the Blues did an excellent job on. And finally, Game 6, as we talked with Fox Sports Midwest TV play-by-play man, John Kelly. Game 6 was very interesting to me because, as we saw in, in the first two rounds, you know, the Blues were able to close it out against the Winnipeg Jets, but then in the second round, they had to go the distance with... Dallas, and we already know that Boston was waiting for their opponent in the Western Conference. So I think closing out in six games was important for the Blues going into the Stanley Cup Final rather than closing it out in seven games or having to go the distance once again and having that fatigue factor while Boston was waiting for them. Well, that's a great point. And, you know, as we know, it's not an easy trip to San Jose. It's it's four hours there and four hours back, and then you'd have a day or two rest and You'd be headed to Boston for for another road trip. So, you know, that's a great point. And you look back at the 2016 playoffs, I think the big reason why the Blues lost in six to San Jose was they were forced to go seven against Chicago and Dallas. Um, They really should have beat Chicago in five. They lost the game five in double overtime. They were by far the better team. And they were extended in both series. And I think they were worn down. So, yeah, that's a great point. I don't think the Blues would have lost the game seven, but who knows? But, again, they didn't want any part of that because, as we know, just like what happened with San Jose and Vegas in the first round, anything could happen in a Game 7. So you you just don't want to go there for sure. 
Once again, you'll hear the entire broadcast Thursday and Friday night, 7 o'clock puck drop with Curbs and Joey. I will have your pregame show with Curbs and Joey as we bring you a live pregame looking back on those Stanley Cup final and Western Conference final games every Thursday and Friday night here on 101 ESPN. We will take a break. We will come back. A different angle. I know, Curbs, you want to talk about of the Alex Petrangelo contract situation and seven things the NHL should consider bringing back. We'll do all of that next as we wrap things up on This Week in Hockey on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN. Well, one final time tonight, and thank you for tuning into This Week in Hockey. Two hours every single Tuesday night, 6 to 8 p.m. We bring you This Week in Hockey. If you missed any part of the show, from Steve Ott to Judd Surratt to Doug Armstrong, our breakdown of the current scenarios to being tossed around by the National Hockey League, Curves versus Joey, you can download the podcast at 101ESPN.com. Our final segment, fellas, I want to go back to the Alex Petrangelo situation for a moment. And also in this segment, fans can hear uh, some potential old hockey trends that may, uh, as somebody put out, could could come back or, or thinks that could come back. We'll get into that here, but I'll, I'm going to take out the Alex Petrangelo contract situation from a different angle, Joe. And I want to take it from a setting the tone angle. You were a player. Players are highly aware of the tone set by management. Is it a winning tone? Is it a tone of smoke and mirrors where they want to make it look like they're trying to win, but you know they're not bringing in the players that are going to help you do it? And and players going into free agency know this. Players, whether they're stuck with term on your contract, know the tone of a franchise. This is now the first time that the St. Louis Blues are dealing with a situation where one of their star players and their captain, still in the prime of his career, is becoming an unrestricted free agent in the cap era. Uh, a key one in in this situation, in the cap era. And how this is handled by Doug Armstrong, how the negotiations, because even if the negotiations go sour, p- players find out about why they did. Players know that the public finds out the reports, what happened. Or if it goes well, or even more importantly, just how you handle you know, the, the the overall situation in terms of the message that you want to send to your team in terms of, look, it is the cap bear and hard decisions have to be made. Uh, I, I think how this goes is one of those key tone-setting moments that can have a, a longer and a larger impact than just the impact on Alex Petrangelo, Joe. Well, Curbs, I think Doug Armstrong, the million-dollar question for him that we are going to find out relatively soon is can we win another cup without Alex Petrangelo? Or do we need Alex Petrangelo to win another cup? Because Doug Armstrong, Tom Stillman, Chris Zimmerman, all the, uh, the whole Blues organization, they, they, everyone just wants to win. And this is every organization, right? So put the numbers and the dollars and the term and how it's structured, put all that aside. I think that Doug Armstrong and this ownership group with the St. Louis Blues, I believe this, they will give him every penny that's earned in the way that he wants it if they feel from the very bottom of their heart that we need him to win another cup or possibly two in this very critical window the Blues are in right now where they're having success and they're trending up. That's why Marco Scandella loved the idea of resigning here. We talked to him a few weeks ago about this because the window is wide open and it's you don't ever know how long it's going to be, but right now it's open for at least a few years, we think. So, you know, Curbs, I think from a tone-setting standpoint, if you go out and you sign Petrangelo for what he wanted, 
you're setting the tone that we want to win and we want to win and we need this we need this guy to do it. Uh, if they don't end up signing them, to me it's it really comes down to the tone is going to be we feel like we put the team first and we feel like we have a team and although Alex was a huge part of that piece, we feel like we have to move forward from a team perspective and we still believe we can win uh, without Alex. Is it going to be tougher? Yes. But can we figure out a way to do it? Absolutely. So from a tone set standpoint, that's that's how I kind of would break that down from how I feel what's going to move forward, how it's going to unfold. And the big part here is th- this might be as much about managing your way through next season more than it is the other because next season, as is, is we heard from Doug earlier, you know, you basically have 90% of your team all set. But after the 20 – after next season, after the 2021 season, Steen – Schwartz, Bozak, and Carl Gunnarsson are unrestricted free agents. Jordan Cairo, Robert Thomas, Ivan Barbashev, and Zach Sanford are restricted free agents. This contract, how they handle and the contracts that they put on Vince Dunn and Alex Petrangelo right now. Oh, and by the way, both Jordan Bennington and Jake Allen are unrestricted free agents at the end of after next season. So I'm, I'm telling you, Joe, this is a massive contract situation in terms of what they're going to be able to do the following year. So th- this is a situation of managing through the competitiveness now for the next few years. Well, and not to mention curbs, Colton Pareko. Uh, what's where, where's Colton at? I don't have my computer. In front he's of got me right two now. years left yeah. after the current season. So he's, he, he's under contract through 2021 and 21, 22. But my point is that, you know, he's going to be getting a pay increase here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at Alex Petrangelo for eight years, how does that get structured with Colton Pareko? You know, I was talking to Pat Maroon the other day about this. Pat Maroon feels, and he's played with Victor Hedman right now, who Victor Hedman is known as being one of the best defensemen in the league. Pat Maroon said it's harder to play against Colton Pareko than Victor Hedman. Wow. I mean, that is an, and it's an amazing statement from a player who's been around the league and has played pretty much in every conference in Pat Maroon. Colton Pareko is going to get paid what he deserves. And he, to me, is such a big part of the future of the St. Louis Blues. And he's a right-handed shot, and so is Petrangelo. And so, again, you talk about moving forward. You mentioned the Schwartz and the Steen, and you have a couple goalies that are BUFAs. And you have to throw Colton Pareko in the mix there too, Curbs, as far as not only from a money standpoint, but from a placement standpoint, do you want to keep Colton Pareko on that three, four pair forever? I mean, you're going to have to if you resign Petrangelo. Or do you feel as if he's ready to make that step? Can he be a new franchise right shot defenseman on that top pair? Who knows? We'll see. All right. Before we get out of here, fellas, and we have a, about four minutes here before we need to wrap up. So Bar Down put an article out of seven old hockey trends that need to make a comeback to the NHL. So I'm going to do two angles here. Curbs, you're going to be the general manager, president of hockey side. Joe, you're going to be the player side. Give me the reason why or why not it should. And we got to go quick on this so one. One's an obtuse angle. One's an acute angle. That's not what I mean. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> first one from the player's angle, Joe, yellow tinted visors. Um, I don't have a problem with it. If it helps the players see, by all means, go for it. Curbs? I, I don't care. Neither? Okay. doesn't impact the game one way or another. So, Joe, you'll have to explain this to me. I don't even know if you'll know what this is. I didn't. Cooperalls. Cooperalls? Are those yeah. those uh, suspenders? Yeah, so it yeah. looks like they're the full like suit that hockey players would wear. I didn't even yeah. know these were in the NHL. Yeah, again, I, I've seen some players wear them. They like them. Some players hate them. It's underneath the jersey. 
whatever. Okay. Wait, I'm the general manager? Yeah. Don't waste my time with how you're going to keep your pants up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Pants up is an important factor in all of this. All right, next you one. Figure that out. That's a, that's a problem for some. That's a, that's a problem for our athletic trainers to deal with. Don't. Uh, no. <laughs> Okay. I like being the general I can, manager. I can see where this is going for me. Okay, next one. The old school goaltender hel- helmets. The one that like Dominic Hasha, Chris Osgood would wear. Like them or keep them away, Joe? Uh, I like them. I think it's, it's it's personal preference. If a goalie wants to throw them on, throw them on. We saw Mike Smith uh, up in Calgary do it this year with the old Mike Vernon kind of look-alike mask. I thought it was cool. Uh, no, I'll go ahead and keep them away. But I, I won't outlaw them. If somebody wants to wear them, wants to wear them. But I, I like how fans get into the designs, and it's better to put a, more stickers on the other one. See, that's what I was hoping for from the general manager's side, not to tell me I was an idiot when I come up with these preferences. I didn't, hey, you're the one that said uh, I, I have to be concerned about how somebody well, suspends their pants. <laughs> technically, four segments ago, you called me the idiot. But that's fine. Next up, bringing back the— did we m- call it, or did you earn it? Uh, I earned it on one game. Okay. These last right. four okay. have been Watch fantastic. Right. Uh, Joe, bringing back the mullets. Bringing back the mullets. Oof, man, I mean, we're starting to see it. I mean, Patrick Kane had one a couple of years ago with the, the lines inside. I think if you bring back the mullet, you have to draw the lines in the side of your head like Patrick Kane did. I think that was pretty cool. That's a good uh, one. I'm all for bringing back the mullets. Why not? I mean, if Bell Bottoms uh, is coming back, and uh, I'd have lost a bet that that ever did, but if, if that's coming back, mullets are coming back too. I'd be fine with the mullets coming back. Okay, yep. a couple more. Joe, player side, bring back the wooden sticks. Bring, no, leave them out of there. Listen, there's these sticks these days. My my daughter could snap an NHL snick, and she could probably shoot it around 60 miles an hour. I love how fast the pucks go. I love the efficiency of the puck, and I love this, the pretty plays and the deeks and the spinoramas. No, I love the sticks the way they are. I know they cost about $5,000 a piece, but let's keep them. General manager? No, I want my players using the best equipment possible. Leave them out. Plain and simple. Final one, the colored skates. I believe David Perron had these for a little bit, didn't he? Ooh, David Prime had the blue toques, didn't he? I thought so. I think, well. Wasn't it like his I, first I, year in the league? Okay, yeah, regardless. So I think Boychuck used to no, have those white. with the big oh, circles. Right. Yeah. Like the, like the circles underneath where they made that loud crunch. I, yeah. I like the way the skates are. You know, the only thing I think the, the players should do to their skates, really, that they have a, an option on is laces. I mean, look at Ovi's wearing the yellow laces. They're kind of goofy looking. But I think aside from that, lace color, I think they should keep this, the skates all the same. Hey, uh, as, if I'm playing the GM role in this, can you tell me uh, who put this piece out so I know I don't have to go to that website ever again? <laughs> yes, I can. It's Bar Down's <laughs> website. Oh, oh. Come on. Now, like, how do they not leave? Like, okay, if, if you're putting that list together, then one that, one, one that really has to be on that list is teams wearing the whites at home again. Yeah, they didn't have that on here. Okay, that that one should have been. If we're going to worry about whether or not somebody's pants are suspended, we should put the the journey. So, uh, the, the, so the visiting and the, the reason is so the visiting teams come in, and you get to see the the multicolors and, and designs. And that I guarantee you, that if you did a fan poll, you're probably going to get ninety five percent of the fans care about that than anything that was on that list, and they would want the change. Okay, well, I can see I won't bring up these lists around you anymore, Chris Kerber. Mm. This is what, you're so sensitive, this Alex. Is what, what happens? This what is ha- what happens when I'm just trying to have fun on hockey. Joe, Joe, Alex, did you have you noticed this? Like, we, we made the, the, the station change, and Alex has gotten all, all like, sensitive and stuff. Are you getting all gloomy on us, Alex? Yeah, what's it's, going it's on here, buddy? outside. What's going on? Yeah, look, you okay? Look, guys. You want to talk? You, you need a hug, Alex? You can go to Kirkwood. Joe will give you one. Joe, you, you know what I'm going to do? I got lots of these don't give up signs in Kirkwood on these front lawns, Alex. Yeah. I'm going to pick one up. I'm going to drop it off on your house. I would, where, I would, where, where uh, I would appreciate that. 
Well, that'll wrap up this week in hockey. We 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 got to get Alex like some call, help. Need to like call somebody after these shows. Yeah. Go drink some Ovaltine. You'll feel better. Drink some alcohol. Oh, I love the malt, the malt flavor Ovaltine. That was my go-to as a kid. Well, that's a good segue. reason to wrap up this week in hockey. Uh, tomorrow night, we got Behind the Bench. We profile Steve Ott. We've got Play Gloria. This week, Friday, I'm sorry, Thursday and Friday nights, Game 5 against San Jose on Thursday. Game 6, the series clincher on Friday. Our pregame coming your way as well. And that, of course, brought to you by Mitsubishi Electric Cooling and Heating. Also by McDonald's. And that starts at 6 o'clock on Thursday and Friday nights. We got Behind the Bench brought to you by Boardwalk Harbor Floors tomorrow night. And that comes your way at 6 o'clock as well. For Alex Ferrario, he'll do okay. He'll, he'll get there. For Joe Vitale, I'm Chris Kerber. Thanks for tuning in to this week in hockey. We'll talk to you all next week. Uh, have a great night here on your home for St. Louis Blues Hockey 101 ESPN.